Welcome to Right Around the Road, the creative podcast that helps you get those pesky voices out of your head and onto the page. And remember, it's the journey that matters. Welcome to episode 110 of Writer on the Road and boy is this an exciting week for all of us. Uh, I'm here to tell you that sagas are officially back and I love sagas. Uh, Now I've heard that straight from the lips of the beautiful Natasha Lester and if you don't know that the Paris Seamstress is coming out today then I don't know how you've missed it. Uh, The build-up has been really, really exciting and Natasha has done a wonderful, wonderful job at at promoting her book. But everything about this lady is so professional and she is so generous with the time and she knows so much that I'm going to keep my introduction very, very short today so we can get straight on to the good bit. Um, But before I do, I just want to tell you what I'm up to with a 10-week book publishing for authors implementation program. Uh, now, the beautiful Paul Brody, who's been on the podcast several times, has allowed me into this course and he's going to change the name to Get Published, which comes off the tongue a whole lot quicker. So I've completed Module 1. Now, if you're thinking about uh, publishing your book and you want to know about the business side of it and the marketing side of it, then this is an amazing course. And the best thing is Paul is has a very strong background in teaching and it shows straight from the start his lessons or his modules are so well organised um, with with a really strong, I think, pedagogy behind them. And it starts with telling us what we're going to learn each lesson. At the end of it, he winds things up about what we have learned and what we know and what we're moving on to in the next lesson. So I was really excited to see a course finally uh, that presents so very, very beautifully. In Module 1, it's packed full of little tidbits you'll be writing for the whole Uh, time that it goes and I think it was about 30 or 40 minutes and I was taking notes the whole time but the thing that impressed me the most was the first question what is my publishing plan so I fell over straight at the first gate it was um, I thought "Uh oh I'm in trouble here and taking a business approach and a business marketing mindset so again being a purely creative brain I don't do any of that stuff so Paul's got me got me on the straight and narrow right from the beginning with this one uh, it goes through outlining our, our book title objective, what we're trying to achieve, and the opportunities that go into being a best-selling author. Now, Paul's program is totally geared to you writing, launching, publishing, and promoting a book so that it becomes a bestseller. And I thought, I'll, I'll give that a go. But of course, I'm way out of my depth. Um, but I'll be taking lots of notes and I'll be sharing my journey with you. So that's module one. Next week's module is book covers. And there's an awful lot more to book covers than I ever, ever imagined. So I'll let you know what I learned uh, when I have a go at that one. Okay, um, that's all I've got for today other than say that in my personal life, we're just about to kick off on holidays. We're heading uh, down to New South Wales to run some workshops down there, which is really exciting after we run a couple of workshops here in the beautiful Roma Street Parklands with our kids I thought, I've got a great life, I really, really love it. I get to go out and play all the time and call it work. Okay, the Voices in Your Head story, writing guidelines is there for you if you want them, uh, free to download if you sign up to our newsletter. Uh, Workbooks are ready for sale, which is really exciting, and our courses are ready to go uh, as well. So we're starting to move firmly into that adult writing field, which is, as I said, so very, very busy, Um, but I'm pretty sure that our Voices in Our, or Voices in Your Head um, uh, narrative framework is up to the challenge. Well, I'm hoping it is anyway. 
Uh, I never ask for iTunes reviews, so if you could leave me an iTunes review, that would be really, really great. But please sit back and listen to Natasha Lester as she shares more than a few details about not only the writing of her book, but some great writing strategies for all of us. I'd never heard of a pre-draft before, but now I know all about them, and soon you will too. Uh, enjoy this very, very special episode of Writer on the Road. We're off to Perth today, and I am privileged to be talking to the beautiful Natasha Lester. How are you, Natasha? I'm very well, thank you, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, as everyone knows, I would not have been able to resist that cover. It is absolutely beautiful. And we're talking about uh, Natasha's book that is out now called The Paris Seamstress. Uh, congratulations on such a, an amazing book, Natasha. It's been getting great reviews already. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm really thrilled and really excited. You know, when you write a book, you just never know how it's going to be received. So when it is received well, it's always a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Now, what is it about this one in particular that you think has captured everyone, everyone's imagination? Because you, you have written a couple before that. I think there might be two or three. The beautiful, they've all got beautiful covers and we'll talk about those in a moment. Oh, here it is. A Kiss for Mr Fitzgerald and Her Mother's Secret. But it's this Paris seamstress that's got everybody talking. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd bottle it and make sure I injected it into every book that I wrote. Um, I don't really know. I do think um, with publishing, I always say, obviously it's hard work, but there's also luck and timing that come into play. And maybe I've just got the right mix of luck and timing happening at the moment. Um, I also did uh, discover when I was writing the book and when I told my publisher it was going, I, was, I had named it The Paris Seamstress. She said to me, that's great. Anything with Paris in the title sells really well. So that was a bit of a fluke and I didn't know that. So I was very lucky about that. <laughs> yeah. And it's got the Eiffel Tower in the background and it's got that yes. 1940s look, I think as well. Yeah. That always helps. Definitely. Um, we wanted to kind of evoke Paris on the cover, but not in a really kind of cliched sort of way. Um, so, and I think you know, I'm so lucky. My covers are stunning. I always get amazing covers. And this one has just set the bar so high. I said to my publisher, I don't know that you're ever going to be able to beat this one. This one's just so beautiful. So the woman and the scarf and the flowers and the upper tower, it all just works so well. Yeah, now everyone, I've got to admit that I have been following Natasha on Facebook for a while and what attracted me was not only the beautiful cover but all those beautiful gowns and that high fashion that you've been putting on your website. Now, I know you've been out to a high tea lately. Uh, yes. Would you like to tell us, am I the only one who is absolutely loving the romance of all those beautiful gowns? Oh, look, yeah, I, I hope that you're not the only one. I hope some other people are interested in that. So I'm quite um, fashion-obsessed, particularly vintage fashion, and I've loved vintage fashion for a long time, and I'm I'm a self-taught fashion historian. I've never done anything, um, prof you know, academically in the area, but I read widely about fashion history, and it's a passion and an interest of mine. So I always do like to include it in my book, so in A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald and in Her Mother's Secret, all of the dresses that the main characters wear are actually based on genuine pieces from the time and I do describe them in a little bit of detail, which um, a lot of readers do comment on and notice and actually really enjoy. And so then when it came to writing The Paris Seamstress, which was an entire book about the birth of the ready-to-wear fashion industry, that was just, you know, like my dream come true because then I could let my passion for fashion run completely wild. And um, 
do a lot of research into an area that I hadn't done that much research into, which was sort of the birth of ready to wear in the late 1930s and early 1940s and looking at some of those designers who really led the way in that industry, many of whom we don't hear of anymore, which is such a shame because they were absolute trailblazers for their time and some of their um, clothes are so iconic. In fact, one of them, Claire McArdle, who was an American, um, just started collecting um, her vintage dresses. Um, and I wore one to the high tea that you just mentioned last weekend, which was fabulous. So I love having these beautiful, you know, 60-year-old dresses that you can wear now and they still they haven't dated. They are not, they're, you know, they're timeless, they're classic. Yeah. Now, if you're not jealous by now, everybody, I've got this beautiful woman who is so vibrant and alive and obviously loving what you do. It's, it's really, really good to see. Now, your idea and your inspiration for this came in part from a podcast that you were listening to on early New York. Now, I was fascinated when I heard that. Yeah, this book, the, uh, this book was a little bit torturous to start. Um, uh, it it didn't come easily. In fact, the very first germ of the idea, even before the podcast, was um, I'd been to see the documentary Dior and I, which was about um, Raph Simons and his tenure as the head of Christian Dior. And um, I loved the documentary and the gowns were amazing. But while I was watching it, I had this very clear vision in my head of a mother and a daughter working together in a Parisian atelier. Um, but whilst that was in my head, there wasn't a story. It was literally just a one-scene vision. I thought, well, I can't really do anything with that. I need a story. And I didn't have one. And so I, I played around with writing. I like to do what I call my pre-first draft, which is this kind of 20,000 words that I knock out in November and then let sit for a couple of months before I then see what the story is in there and so I'd written this 20,000 words and I still didn't know what the story was and I was starting to panic and um, that was when I happened to sit down and put on the Barry Boys podcast which is a podcast about New York and this particular episode was about the garment district in New York and um, it's quite a, a broad episode it covers a lot of the fashion history of New York but one of the little snippets in there was that they mentioned that um, it was really the Second World War which allowed for New York and other places around the world to find their own fashion industry because Paris was suddenly shut off from the rest of the world because of the German occupation. And up until then, everything that anyone wore anywhere in the world was a direct copy knockoff of a Parisian design. And I kind of knew that, you know, Paris had been heavily copied, but I didn't realise the extent to which that had happened, um, even to where young girls, and in fact, Estella, the character in the Paris seamstress does this too. She's employed to go along to the Paris fashion shows and sit um, in the audience, subtly sketching the designs into her program and to basically then sell on to the department store buyers in the US. So they would then make up their own genuine Chanel copies and sell those to the Americans. And so, of course, once that whole copying industry was shut down by the war, then everybody else around the world had to discover their own fashion sensibilities, um, start to allow designers to design clothes within their own countries. And so it was that podcast episode that made me think, okay, now I can take that vision I've had of the mother and daughter sitting in the atelier and attach that to a story about the birth of the ready-to-wear industry in New York in the 1940s and that can be my character's journey. So 
thank God for the podcast because otherwise I still might be sitting there staring at the screen going, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And this is, a, this is a new way of research. We all know about Trove and we all know about the beautiful old books and magazines and newspapers, but there's a lot of people out there doing our research for us nowadays, isn't there? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, podcasts are amazing. I sort of realised um, when I was struggling to start the parasamestress that I had been spending so much time writing that I hadn't been uh, getting out and about and doing other things to uh, spur on my own creative inspiration. And I hadn't been going to galleries, I hadn't been going to theatre, I hadn't been listening to podcasts, I hadn't been reading just general books widely. And so that was, I made a deliberate choice to sit down and, and listen to more podcasts and do more things like that just to keep those creative juices flowing. And we are so lucky. There are so many different things that you can do these days if you are creatively, you know, having a creative drought. Um, and I was just lucky that that first podcast I listened to was, you know, provided the inspiration for the book. Yeah, and I think there was a there was a documentary about Tiffany's as well. It all just it all comes together beautiful. We've got Christian Dior, everyone. We've got Tiffany's. We've got beautiful early fashion of Paris. Then we trot off to New York. You actually, I don't know whether you went to Europe to research this one or your next yes. one. I did. Yeah, I was. I had a fabulous trip researching this. Um, I specifically, I hadn't done this before. But I actually hired a private tour guide in Paris to take me around the historical fashion area in Paris, which is called the Sentier. And she was amazing. So she got me into an atelier um, and I spent a couple of hours there watching the women at work. And it was really interesting because up until that point, my intention for Estella, the main character, was that she would be a traditional seamstress. So using needle and thread or a sewing machine and working in that way. But the atelier that I visited, um, they make the silk flowers for couture dresses there. And I hadn't realised that that was a kind of a separate part of the fashion manufacturing process. Um, but there are seven traditional metiers in Paris in, uh, attached to haute couture and it's things like featherwork, flowerwork, lacework, embroidery, etc. And so I was in one of only two now existing flowerwork studios watching the women make these amazing flowers. And the process is incredibly complicated and incredibly amazing to look at. So I just sat there for two hours, snapping photos, asking them questions about what they were doing. And that was just absolutely amazing. Um, and as well as that, my guide took me around the Marais area in Paris, which is a big setting for the book. Um, in particular, um, there are lots of um, old uh, nobles' townhouses in the Marais called Hotel Particulier. And I and a bat an abandoned one of those is a central kind of setting in my book because a lot of those um, amazing houses were abandoned and derelict during the Second World War. So she took me around to lots of those and showed me lots of those. Um, and she also, we just, she took me to places that I didn't know existed. One in particular was the, the theatre of the Palais Royal. We happened to be walking through the courtyard of the Palais Royal on our way to the Sentier. And there was a waiter outside sweeping the path and she started chatting to him. She obviously knew him. And anyway, it transpired that he had the keys to the theatre of the Palais Royal, and he was asking whether I would be interested in going up and having a look. And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Not really having any idea what I was about to stumble upon. And we walked up this amazing winding staircase, got to the top, walked into the theatre, and I think I just literally stood there immobile for five minutes looking around. It was the most gorgeous, splendid, amazing place. And while I was standing there, an entire scene for the book appeared in my mind, which is 
Like the second or third scene in the book, it's a very important scene in the book now. Um, but if I hadn't have gone there and if I hadn't have done that tour with her, I would never have found that place and that scene might never have happened. So it's those moments of serendipity that you hadn't planned to happen that I think are an amazing part of actually on the ground research and that sets the book apart and make it uh, a better book than it could otherwise be. Yeah, and this is this is the crux of our podcast, everybody. This is what I want to talk to you um, with about about with Natasha. I want to talk to you about how putting in the effort, putting in the research, mulling over those ideas, and letting your subconscious do some of the work brings out a much better product for the want of another word. Yeah, look, I'm a huge advocate of actually 90% of the work of a novel is thinking time, not actual writing time. Um, So for me, as I mentioned before, I do what I call this 20,000 word pre-first draft in November every year. And then I have three kids, they're off on school holidays for the entirety of December and January, which actually works quite well because it means I have two months where I don't write at all uh, over that time. And that 20,000 words literally just sits in my head and it starts to unravel itself into a story rather than a a mess of words that I would never let anyone read those 20,000 words because they're so bad and and such a mess. Um, And then I sit down in February when they go back to school and I write a first draft. And then, so every time my kids have school holidays, um, I have that entire time off writing. So it's two or three weeks, uh, a couple of times during the year where I aim to finish a draft by that point. Then I have two or three weeks off to just let that draft sit to think about it, to come back to it with fresh eyes. I don't think, for me, I can't finish a draft and then look at it again the next day and see the problems inherent in it. I need to step away and have that thinking time. And that's, I think, where the most valuable uh, where the most valuable ideas occur. I also always take a good month off around July every year. I don't write, that's my research time. And so that's when I'll go away overseas and do on-the-ground research and also just sit for a couple of weeks at home and just read lots of books related to all the different themes and ideas in the novel as well. So there's lots of actual time in the course of the year where I'm not actually doing any writing at all, but that's the most valuable time. Even just like doing the dishes. Um, I have a notepad in the kitchen because I tend to find that every time I'm doing something mundane where my mind's not occupied, that's where you have all the ideas or out walking or I'm meditating at yoga. I'm the world's worst meditator because I literally lie there with a million different scene ideas happening in my head. So, and I always think that's the, that's where the work of writing occurs. It's where you're doing the thinking, having the ideas. And then really it's just a matter of sitting down at your desk and turning that, those thoughts into words and sentences, which, um, you know, is a different, uh, part of your mind. I think that you're using than the thinking mind that's unraveling things for you. Yeah, and you can't rush the process no matter how much you want to. No, no, and that was exactly like, as I said, the start of the Paris census was so hard and that 20,000 words was was rubbish and I didn't use a lot of it, but there was no way I could force that book to happen. I couldn't, I couldn't have just sat there every day and continued to write it because the story wouldn't have unraveled itself. I had to get away from the desk, go listen to the podcast, go watch the Dior and I movie, see this documentary on Tiffany's on a plane on the way to Adelaide and allow all of those things to go, okay, here's the idea that you need, here's the next idea, here's how it all sort of ties together. Yeah, and the sights and the smells of of um, Paris. And did you go to New York? Yes, I went to New York as well. Um, so I went to, uh, again, hired another tour guide there who um, he was a specialist in, the New, in New York's garment district. So he took me around the 
historical garment district, which interestingly is quite near Times Square. Um, so there's not much left there now. A lot of it's moved out of the city, um, but you can still see the old buildings that they used to use as their clothing factories. And uh, there are still little parts of it around. Um, and I also went to, I mean, I love archives. They're my favourite things. So I went to the Parsons School of Design archives because they hold the collection of Claire McArdle's sketches, her fashion illustrations. So I sat in the archive there for a day looking over all of her fashion illustrations through the 1940s just to see, you know, how she used to draw her illustrations because every illustrator is different and particularly for her working in ready to wear it's a little bit of a quicker process than haute couture say so she didn't have the time to watercolor and that kind of thing they're really just pencil sketches with swatches of fabric attached to them and and written details about the buttons and the belts and that kind of thing so that was a really interesting process too so yes I did go to New York I was very lucky <laughs> and even as I'm listening to you talking, Natasha, I'm getting very excited because these are the kinds of sagas that I used to read 20 years ago and they were just beautiful. And, of course, I tried to write them myself. I was down in Tasmania at the time and all the publishers weren't buying these things anymore. Does this mean there's a, there's a wonderful, I guess, resurgence of those beautiful sagas? Yeah, I absolutely think there is. And in fact, um, I'm pretty sure that it was at the Romance Writers Conference last year, if you looked at the list of publishers and agents who were attending and what they were looking for, many of them mentioned family sagas. Um, it seems to be something that they and the reading public have an appetite for, which is great. And because I love those kinds of stories too. Um, and I love writing those kinds of stories. And, you know, anything that takes place over a large period of time and involves multiple generations of a family, multiple locations around the world, like I think it's all those kinds of stories are wonderful. They're the kind of stories that literally sweep you away and that's what I aim to write and, you know, hopefully I'll sweep one reader away at least. That would be marvellous to achieve. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll be that person. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's really exciting that sagas are back and it's really exciting that we're starting to see the um, true romance of, of what a novel should be as far as I'm concerned. And I'm watching, um, you watch Downton Abbey on TV and yeah. then I'm watching A Place to Call Home, which is yep. beautiful. Uh, and then you've got your book coming along and hopefully it'll be made into a film as well. And we got, start to experience that romance again and I wonder whether it's because what's happening in the world that we're actually closing down and wanting to see some more romance or romance in the true sense of the word again? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's uh, the news is so depressing lately. And, of course, you have to make yourself watch it because you have to know what's going on in the world and you have to be the advocate for change in the areas that most affect you, um, particularly with everything that's happening with women at the moment. Um, so it's all really important. But it is, it is hard. It's hard to always be struggling and fighting and um, looking at what's happening and despairing that things are ever going to change, you know, particularly when you're researching something like the Second World War and, you know, you see all of the terrible things that happen and you think, how can we ever let something like that happen again? And why don't we learn from history? And then you see the evidence all around you of us not learning from history. And it's, it's really quite sad. I think that's probably the hardest part of the research for me is that sense that we don't learn and we do keep making the same mistakes. And, you know, I feel like sweeping everybody up and passing them some of the things that I've read and saying, you know, if everybody sat down and read this, surely we wouldn't still be doing these things. Um, but I don't know. So yes, so maybe it is something like that. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, I, I read a wide range of books and I love to read books that help me to escape from all of that 
just as I love writing books that are also realistic um, and set in the nitty gritty of what's happening right now to kind of, you know, uh, re-immerse you in that and, and re-inspire you to keep fighting the fight, I guess. So, yeah, um, perhaps it is a sign of the times um, that we need to have both. We need to have, you know, the escape and the reality in order to appreciate both things. Yeah, and the romance of those beautiful, beautiful old buildings. As you said, you were in the area of um, Paris with those beautiful old lodgings. You just want to to stay there forever, don't you? And you oh yes, like yeah, yeah. They're just so lovely, and it's you know, and it's they're really only lovely now because um, the Marais, in particular, they've. Um, you know, come together to restore those buildings and return them to their former splendour. They were obviously lovely back in the 17th and 18th centuries too. And then particularly the Marais area went through a massive period of decline. It's hard to imagine now because it's such a hip and groovy and trendy area that that, it, that, that area could ever have been um, sort of overlooked, but it was. Um, and now to walk back through them. And I love, what I love most about them is you know, from the street, most of them, it's just a set of wooden double doors and you don't know what's behind the doors. And then you open the doors and you enter traditionally into a courtyard. You don't enter into the house. And the courtyard is usually a beautiful um, formal garden, manicured garden. And then behind that is the house and it's, you know, stone and it's just so amazing. And it's that sense of um, anticipation, I guess, as you open the wooden doors and step through into the courtyard and then look at what lies behind that I think is really lovely. And I hope I've tried, I hope I've captured that in my book. Yeah. And, and the, and the atmosphere and the gardens and all those things, um, I'm leaning forward, everybody listening to Natasha as she talks, it's, um, getting goosebumps. Uh, now I read an article and there was a series of articles that came out in some of the weekend magazines where they discovered over in Paris an untouched apartment and it still had the ladies' boudoir mirrors and powders. And you're nodding your head. You read that article too? Yes, I did. And I've read a couple of books that um, novelists have written based on that discovery as well, which is obviously, you know, why wouldn't it capture any anyone's imagination? It's such a great story. I know it's hard to imagine. But then, you know, seeing photographs of the abandonment of some of these buildings, you can see easily how that would have happened. And, and so many apartments were were just abandoned during the war as the Parisians particularly fled Paris and moved down to the south of the country, past the Loire and into the unoccupied zone. You know, people just left their houses behind, they left their animals behind, they left their furniture behind, they left everything behind. So you can see easily, looking back at history, how that could have happened. Even though it seems unimaginable for that to happen, it's possible. Yeah, and we live in such a practical world nowadays. We don't have those beautiful shalongs and those beautiful drapes and, and all those things. Now, I didn't mean this podcast to go on so long about the romance of one novel, so I do apologise, but I've got to, I don't think I'll be the only one that does this and pick <laughs> your brain about the details. I wanted to talk a little bit about the writing process, which you've touched on already. Those intricate plots and you've got, I think you've got a dual, dual narrators going on and, yep. and the work that goes in from the writer's end to make that um, flow seamlessly. <laughs> so here is another point at which I would say if I knew how I did that, I would um, be a much better writer. No, for, oh, I'm an inveterate pantser. No matter how hard I have tried to plot, it doesn't work. My ideas don't like to be forced. They like to um, literally unfold page by page as they do for a reader. So I literally start out writing the book with this idea that I'm going to write about 
a mother and daughter in a Parisian atelier and the daughter is going to go to New York and be part of the birth of the ready-to-eat industry. Like that's all that I know. I know nothing else at all. And so then I have to kind of uh, unravel it from there. You know, what is the story? How does the plot come together? Um, in fact, with this book, I didn't even know until August of 2016 it must have been, and I handed it in in November, so only September, October, three months later. I didn't even know it was going to be a dual narrative. Up until that point, it was purely a historical story. So the contemporary narrative only got written in that three months and then threaded in throughout the story, which is I, I don't recommend doing it that way, <laughs> um, but that was just how it worked for me. So, um, So what I do is I just write my first draft, I get it all out, and now that, um, uh, so the Paris Seamstress is a dual narrative, contemporary and historical. I'm currently working on um, 2019's book, which is called The French Photographer at the moment. That's also a dual narrative. And so what I've done with both of those, because it worked for the Paris Seamstress, is to write the historical storyline first and then to write the contemporary storyline. And then after those are both written in the first draft, in the second draft, start to look at how those two storylines can be woven in together. Um, if I was to write a few chapters of one and then think, oh, now the contemporary storyline should come in and I'll write that now, I would lose the thread. I need to be immersed in that one storyline until I've nutted it all out and then immerse myself in the other storyline until I've nutted it all out. So so that's what I do. First draft is, is historical storyline, contemporary storyline. Draft two is threading them together and adding in all the research that I've done Draft three is look, making sure the plot is working and the pacing's working and all of that kind of thing. Um, and and that's about the point where I do a bit more planning and I have a couple of charts and tools that I sit down and do to make sure that the narrative has enough tension and the pace is working and those kinds of things. But that comes quite late for me. Um, yes, I don't know that I recommend following my writing process. It's a bit chaotic, um, but it works. So I have to go with it. <laughs> yeah, and you're very generous in sharing a lot of a lot of those writing processes and knowledges. And I know, uh, I think a couple of comments on your blog were, how could you possibly write six drafts? That's so many. And then I think of some of our great writers who write 20 drafts. Um, yeah. And there seems to be this idea out there that you can churn something out in a couple of drafts and it's good. And I really want to dispel that myth because what you're saying is writing is hard and the process is hard and sometimes things don't work and you've got to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, absolutely. Look, my first book took was 13 drafts. Um, so it was draft lucky number 13. That was the one that got accepted by the publisher. Um, so it was many, many, many drafts. And then um, obviously I've gotten a little bit quicker. It's probably about six drafts that I do now, um, but still it's a lot of drafts, you know, constant rewriting. I would never show, I know there are some writers who do hand their first drafts into their publishers and, and they, I think they're the kinds of writers who, do more planning and, and spend more time on that first draft. For me, the first draft is the, an eight-week kind of rush to get it all out before I lose the story. So it's very messy. I don't even t do a spell check of it because it's so rough. Um, so, yes, multiple drafts is absolutely the way to go because you have to keep pushing yourself to make it the best you can be. You can't just write and think it's good enough. I never want to put out something that's good enough. I want it to be the best I could possibly make it at the time. And for me, that only comes about through a constant process of rewriting and revising. Yeah. And you said 2017 was a big year for you and that perseverance is just the key to, to a writing life. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we had tried to get A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald um, and then her mother's secret um, published overseas um, 
and you know we got lots of rejections I mean as a writer you need to get very used to rejections because they happen all the time even when you're a published writer like I am here I am being rejected by other overseas publishers so rejections still come in no matter at what level you are at um, and then um, I sort of changed some things around about the way in which my rights were managed late last year and um, very quickly after that um, I was uh, Little Brown who's a major publisher in the UK made me an offer to publish all four of my historical novels which was great and then a couple of weeks later Grand Central from the UK, US um, uh, offered to publish the Paris Seamstress so Parasames will be coming out in the UK and the US as well as Australia and New Zealand this year, which is very, very exciting because that has been my dream. You know, I can't even imagine how it will feel to hear that there are people on the other side of the world reading my books. Like, that's like, wow. <laughs> and it is, it is so very, very exciting. And I wonder what the Americans will do to the cover. I hope they keep it. No, they haven't. <laughs> I haven't shared the cover yet with anyone because I don't think I'm quite allowed to yet. I've only just got it in the last couple of weeks. But... Um, Look, it's it suits their market perfectly, and they had a very different market when it comes to covers. So I can absolutely see why they have chosen it. But nothing beats the Australian cover for the Paracentrus. The UK are using that cover, which is great because they love it too. So um, yeah, it's very interesting how different aesthetic sensibilities are around the world in relation to book covers. <laughs> yeah, and and to have those, um, as you said, international rights, it becomes quite complicated, and you need to get advice, don't you? Oh, you do. Absolutely. And, you know, even you go in with the best of intentions and get the best of advice and it still might not work out doing it that way. So you have to be prepared to, I think, constantly reassess the way you are managing all of your subsidiary rights. So audio as well and everything else and be prepared to make changes. And that can be hard because it often means that you've got to take rights off some people to give them to other people. And that can be difficult, but you know, the, the biggest thing about being a writer is understanding that you're managing your own business and you have to be across every part of that business. It's not just the writing, it's the marketing, it's the publicity, it's the contracts, it's the legalities, it's the selling of the, your rights and your products and your creative output. And you have to constantly be assessing every part of that to make sure it's working the right way. Um, otherwise, you're letting yourself down, I think. And sometimes you have to make, you know, decisions that aren't, nice and they're really hard um but you just have to put be have faith in yourself that you know in your gut what the right thing to do is and then to follow that through and to you know do it in, in the nicest and best possible way yeah now i'm i don't even know if i'm allowed to ask this one this might be one we have to delete everybody uh the <laughs> ebook rights have you have you sold those yes yeah, so um hashet um have the ebook rights here in australia and uh, Little Brown in the UK have got ebook rights and Grand Central have got the US ebook rights. So the ebook rights have gone with each publisher. They've taken paperback, ebook, and audio for those territories. Oh, and the audio, I hope they put them out in audio. That would be really exciting as well, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, Kirsten Mr. Fitzgerald and her mother's secret are both out in audio and Parasemtis will be out in audio on the 27th of March too. Um, I love the I love listening to the auditions for the narrators. That's really fun. And because it really makes your book becomes a different thing when it's uh, spoken aloud. Uh, you know, it's no longer just the words on the page. And I really enjoy that part of it too and being involved in that too. Yeah, but how exciting that um, they've jumped on the audio rights and the audio rights are coming out for the Paris seamstress straight away. Is that is that unusual? Uh, not anymore. That's starting to become much more common, um, particularly as audio rights are, you know, 
starting to really pick up and increase their market share. They're still quite tiny, but the growth is quite massive. So, I mean, I'm a huge fan of audiobooks. I always have one on my phone now to listen to in the car. I can't remember the last time I listened to the radio. It's always a podcast or an audio book and my kids are the same too. Um, so yeah, so it is definitely becoming more common to have a simultaneous release because it makes them, it makes it better for all the different publishers involved. Plus the readers, they can get the book in whatever format they want to get it on the same day, whether it be ebook, paperback or audio, you know, I don't, I don't care which method people use to listen or read it, whatever works best for them. And so long as it's available for them, that's what I like to be able to see. Yeah. And I should imagine that um, the, the meteor sagas would actually make great listening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've listened to bits of my um, previous tour, History Mystic Fitzgerald and Her Mother's Secret, and it is, it's really quite, you know, you, ca- you can easily get swept away in just listening to them because it's, it is a different kind of experience to reading the words on the page. So we're really interested to see how the narrator works out for the Paris Seamstress because her, her, her audition was amazing. So I'm really hoping that she'll come through with the goods. I'm sure she will. <laughs> oh, how exciting. I I'm, I'm, um, might have to get hold of that one myself. Now, <laughs> I just up until now you have been teaching writing with the Australian Writers Centre, uh, but you're only doing one thing this year, I think, or you've got one coming up in April in Sydney. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Um, I've had to cut back a bit on teaching last year and then even more so this year just because... Um, teaching is often weekends and weeknights and then with the publicity events they're often weeknights and weekends too and so something has to give um so I've had to cut back which is a shame because I love teaching teaching is the thing that always re-inspires me and re-motivates me and reminds me of how lucky I am to be doing what I'm doing and I was really lucky when I started out I had some great people teaching me and helping me so if I can return the favor to anybody even if it's in a really tiny way then I would love to be able to do that so Yes, yeah, so I am teaching a course for the Australian Writers Centre in Sydney in April. That's fully booked. It booked out within about two days of them releasing it, which was lovely. Um, but I'm running some more courses in Perth, um, which is obviously where I'm from over the rest of the year. I think I've got a couple more coming up. Um, my plan is, and I would love to be able to do this to run a writing retreat on the East Coast, probably somewhere in New South Wales. And I've been getting quotes in from places to be able to do that it's just a matter of finding the time to sit down and go yes that's when I can do it and getting it all locked away so that's the dream there is this beautiful nunnery in a little place called Karkor out the back of Orange and it's this old nunnery or monastery or one of those things amazing building amazing place and I think that's where you should have your writer's oh right I'll have to look into that that sounds very atmospheric and wonderful yes Yes. (laughs) I said to my daughter we've got to run a writer's retreat there but we never so you can have my idea okay (laughs) thank you (laughs) anytime Uh, now uh, just as we're winding up now I noticed that you have finished drafting the French photographer already. Uh, now, this is working ahead, everybody. This is where traditional publish ha- publishing has it all over us indies. Uh, you have to be very organised and you have your schedule mapped out ahead of you. That means you must be thinking about or working on the book after the French photographer. I am. I know. It's amazing. So the French photographer will be out in late March next year. And so I've just finished the first round of the structural edit on that. Um, and so I handed that in on Sunday, in fact. So today I'm about to pick up again that 20,000 words that I've written off my 2020 book um, and see how much of a disaster that is, <laughs> whether there's anything in there worth saving. Hopefully there is. Um, no, I, I think that there is. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like now, and I've had lots of time to think about that um, 
book and so I'm really ready to get back into it and start doing some writing again rather than redrafting and editing um yeah. yeah looking forward to it and has any serendipity happened is there any um storylines podcast documentaries dropped out of the sky um to inspire you yeah, it's really interesting now. Now that I'm doing more and more historical research, each story comes out of some research that I've done for the previous book. So the French photographer came out of something I found when I was researching the Paris seamstress and the 2020 book, which at the moment is called The Dior Bequest, um, came out of something that I found when I was researching the French photographer. So each book is inspiring an idea for the previous book. And in each book, I bring back the main character from the previous book in a bit of a cameo role. So it's kind of a bit of continuity, which, you know, it doesn't matter if nobody notices, but people who've read the books will notice and they really like to see them pop up again, albeit briefly. So that's quite fun too. <laughs> yeah, I used to love those early uh, Penny Vincenzi novels and she used to write about all these things that you're talking about, all those rich, um, what do you call it, haute couture, how do you pronounce that? Haute couture, yes. Thank you. I've got it. I'm glad this, everybody. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that you're going along in that fine tradition. It's, it's really, really exciting. Thank you for being so very, very generous. We look forward to all of those books, how you can bear to wait. So we've got Paris Street, Seamstress, French Photographer, and now something to do with Kristen Dior. Uh, you can follow all this, everybody, on Natasha's um Facebook page because I just got lost in your stories. I got lost in your research. I got lost. So if you're a romantic, everybody like me, <laughs> just want to have a look at all this beautiful, rich history, Natasha's done it all for us. She's very kind like that. Uh, now, where can we find your book and where you're launching and all those sort of fun details? So the book will be available in all good bookstores. Um, also, as an ebook on Kindle, iBooks, all the regular platforms, plus as an audiobook um, through Audible and iBooks and all the regular audiobook retailers as well. So you pretty much can get it anywhere um, and online through places like Booktopia too. Um, so, yes, so hopefully if anyone is interested, you um, are able to track down a copy and enjoy it. And you'll be in Sydney but not Brizzy. No, oh, no, I am coming to Brisbane in May, though. Um, I'm doing two events, uh, two libraries, Carindale and some other library that I've forgotten. Ch Chernside, is that? Yeah, is that yep. Am I making that up? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a suburb. <laughs> so that's in late May. I don't have booking details for those yet, but hopefully they'll be on my website by the time this podcast goes to air. So, yes, and I'm in Sydney um, for an event on the 9th of April. Yeah, now isn't this the life we all want, everybody? I'm looking around me, but I'm the only one sitting here. <laughs> we really do want this life, everyone. And your next research trip, because I'm a sticky beak, will be to? Um, I'm going in December, in fact, to Europe, um, and this time going to Belgium, France and the UK. So that should be fun. <laughs> Look, that is absolutely delightful. I have enjoyed listening to you talk, Natasha. It's been a privilege and I really wish you all the best for the Paris Seamstress and all those other books that you've got coming out. And you have one avid fan here who will be following you every step of the way. Oh, thank you so much, Melinda. It was so lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. 